0: Hey, welcome to the Bioinformatics chat. This is the second episode in a row when we will be talking about Markov models. This time we'll be talking about hidden Markov models. And uh, we'll be putting them to good use. We'll be using them for uh, genotyping based on long read sequencing. And uh, one of the authors of this algorithm is today with me. Trevor Piso, welcome to the podcast.
1: Hey, thanks, Roman. I'm happy to be
0: on here. Trevor, tell us uh, briefly about yourself and your background. Um, yeah. I uh,
1: So I have done a lot of my work in computer science. Um, I started the PhD program at UC Santa Cruz and found my way into a bioinformatics lab and have since... Uh, changed majors to join the, the bioinformatics department. Um, I uh, have done a lot of work in method development, um, specifically for long, uh, long reads, um, under the uh, advice of my advisor, Benedict Payton. Uh, and yeah, I'm a fourth year student now, probably have two or three more years left of the uh, program.
0: Right. And that's at, uh, University of California, Santa Cruz.
1: Yeah, that's correct.
0: Cool. Uh, so one of the concepts that we'll be dealing with today is long read sequencing. So give us a brief introduction. I think it, uh, came up a couple of times in this podcast, but, um, yeah, what, what is that? And, uh, why is it very different from the normal sequencing, the next generation sequencing we're used to? Yeah. Um,
1: so I think the biggest difference that I usually talk about is the length and the quality of, of long reads. So next generation or second generation sequencing, uh, produces, uh, relatively short but very high quality reads. Um, so the nucleotide sequence you get, you're, you're pretty sure that all of them are correct. Um, for long reads, the, the reads are of a much lower quality, so you'll get base-called errors, maybe one in ten or one in a hundred, um, and they oftentimes will have sort of large gaps or large insertions in the reads that just aren't present in the sample. Um, and this is especially so for Nanopore reads. So um, the PacBio, Pacific Biosciences, and Oxford Nanopore technologies are the two. Big long read sequencers. I've got a lot more experience with nanopore reads. Um, nanopore reads are not quite as accurate as PacBio, but um, they're generally longer. I think they've got a lot more potential for um, development.
0: We should also mention uh, a piece of uh, recent news that uh, PacBio got acquired by uh, Illumina.
1: Yeah, that's right. Um, and I uh, hope that that means that PacBio is going to keep moving forward. Uh, we'll see how that develops. But um, I'm sort of hedging my bets on Nanopore being the long-read sequencer of the future for a lot of my work.
0: Okay. And uh, what what kind of instrument do, do you use? Do you use Minion? Yeah. So
1: the lab at UC Santa Cruz has um, had a long-standing relationship with Oxford Nanopore one of the um, people who developed the idea um, met back in 2004, 2006, uh, works at um, Santa Cruz. And so we've had a long history of um, work with ONT uh, in the development of it. So we've, we had one of the 1st minion sequencers and that's still around, but their latest sort of, Large-scale sequencing platform of Promethion um, has also been uh, in use at Santa Cruz for a year, maybe two years at this point. Uh, We do a lot of work with Matane Jane, who is in the department, um, who's our resident nanopore expert.
0: Uh, Did you get a chance to play with his instruments yourself, or are you confined to the dry lab? Um,
1: I'm much more of a dry lab guy. I have gone into the server room where they keep it. Um, it, uh, is surprisingly small to see. You know, it's maybe, uh, two feet by three feet. Um, it's pretty impressive how much sequencing data can come out of, uh, uh, you know, a relatively small little machine. Um,
0: for sure. Yeah. Of course, you can do a lot of things with, uh, long read sequencing. One of the, Recurring themes. So what one of the main applications of long read sequencing is assembly, uh, de novo assembly, when you need to, um, resolve, um, long repeats and uh, connect the, the context. Um, but you apply long reads to something maybe a bit less conventional, and that is genotyping. That is figuring out if you if you have an individual and you sequence their genome, and you try to figure out which uh, alleles they have at like various SNPs locations, right? Is that a common thing to do? Are, are there any any precedents? Are there any existing algorithms to do genotyping from long reads?
1: Yeah, there have been a few uh, papers that have come out in the recent past. Um, trying to do this but um, one of the biggest problems is that the quality of long reads is just so poor that it's really difficult to use the existing next generation uh, algorithms and applications in order to do uh, genotyping and variant co- uh, calling you know with with short reads it's um, you know you do an alignment and you can essentially count up the nucleotides at each reference locus, and uh, call it a het variant or a homozygous variant. Um, but because the reads are so lossy, um, it's not really possible to do that with long reads. We, um, during the development of this uh, project, we tried running, for example, uh, GATK's haplotype caller on long reads and. We couldn't get anything. We ran free bays on it and it called a variant about every five nucleotides. So, <laughs> um, <laughs> these methods really aren't, aren't set up for it.
0: Right. So it's, it's a bit paradoxical because when doing genotyping, you actually care the most, you don't care about the big picture. You care the most about this very tiny point variations and, uh, Therefore, it seems a very bad fit uh, to use the technology that gives you a good big picture but very lousy sort of single nucleotide resolution. So how did this idea come about to uh, do genotyping with long-read sequencing? And uh, what are the benefits uh, of long-read sequencing in this context?
1: Yeah, um, so it came about uh, my advisor, Benedict Payton, and um, another researcher, uh, Tobias Marshall, who um, works at a Max Planck in Germany, uh, came up with the idea together, um, and we'll go into it, but the loose idea is that we should be able to leverage the fact that these long reads will span multiple heterozygous sites, where we know that if... Uh, Read comes from one of these maternal or paternal haplotypes. Um, the presence of adjacent heterozygous sites enables us to divide the reads into, uh, mom and dad chromosomes, into the maternal and paternal ones. Um, so that, we'll go into it, but that's sort of the crux of the, uh, method. Um, but, you know, like you said, why would we want to use long reads for this? Um, And the reasons are because there's a lot of areas in the genome that are difficult to call with short reads. So um, in, especially in repetitive or duplicated regions, short reads have a difficult time mapping uniquely. So for example, centromeres and telomeres have satellite DNA and it's very, long stretches, megabases of the same small motifs repeated over and over again. And variation in there is hard to tease out because reads can map um, exactly to many areas of those uh, regions. Similarly, in duplicated regions, so you can look back at gene duplication events, um, transposons such as lines and signs, uh, these cause the same sequence to appear multiple times in the human genome. Um, and in a lot of mammals too. Um, and so again, if you have a read that has come from one of these regions, it's hard to figure out exactly where it fits into which one of these signs of lines or signs it does. Um, so the benefit of long reads is that they can span these whole, um, Span entirely these genomic features. Uh, sometimes they'll be anchored on one side of it and extend into it. So, for example, if you were trying to see if there was some variation in the uh, portion of the centromere of a chromosome, you could. Uh, it's much easier to find a long read that you know uniquely maps to one of the non-centromeric or pericentromeric regions but then we will extend into the centromere. And if you can use that to uh, get visibility into the centromere, you can start to call variants in there. You can start to understand the variation that exists in there. Um, some of the nanopore runs that um, we've been uh, getting out of the Promethion sequencer with Matane's help um, produce reads that are megabases in length I, maybe not 2 megabases but um over 1 megabase which means that this we can really get a, a deep deep vision into some of these hard to reach areas of the genome
0: right so on the one hand you can genotype these repetitive areas that you normally don't have access to and also as a free bonus you get this phasing information so you know which haplotypes there are in this sample, so which SNPs are you know, clustered together on, on the same chromosome, essentially.
1: Exactly. Um, doing the variant calling with long reads sort of as a, a byproduct of this method means that we also get out information, like you said, about haplotypes. Um, so finding variants that are all inherited together also has clinical applications, you know, for example, if you had a variant in some coding region that is associated with another variant and the promoter for it, that uh, that variation is going to behave differently from if from the case where there's a you know something that changes the promoter for a region, but there's a deleterious variant in the other haplotype um, so knowing which variants go together is also an important uh, benefit of using this method.
0: Yeah, that's a good example. But okay, so we decided that there are certain benefits to doing genotyping with long-read sequencing, but still we have to overcome this problem that uh, long-reads are uh, very noisy, they have very high percent of um, errors. So the, the figure usually cited for PacBio was 15%. Do you know what the percent error rate uh, is typical in in your experiments?
1: I think that the technology is improving. I think that 15% is maybe a little more errors than we actually see with PacBio. One of the things, though, to understand is that with short reads, the errors are pretty much randomly distributed. So... Um, and especially with the presence of quality scores, you can use them to say, well, the read shows a miscalled base here, and we can be sure because it's a low quality read. With long reads, the errors are uh, systemically patterned. So, for example, with nanopore reads, the uh, base caller has a hard time correctly calling homopolymers, so multiple nucleotides, of the same nucleotides in a row. Um, so in addition to this effect of having miscalled bases, having insertions and deletions where you wouldn't expect, you also get these areas where the genome has, you know, 10 A's in a row, a poly A tail or something like this. And the nanopore sequencer will consistently miscall those. Which means that the error profile is it's different, and it's
0: um yeah so so maybe a simple uh simple percentage doesn't really tell you much because uh when when we say like x percent uh or like one percent for Illumina, we mean that if you look at a specific base called then it has this probability of being incorrect, but if like a whole segment is removed or inserted it's it's not as easy to reduce to a single percentage perhaps
1: yeah um i th- the the point i was trying to get at was that the it, with short reads with enough sequencing those errors will be uh sort of removed if you have enough read depth you can sort of just by the law of large numbers tease out what's an error and what is a a true variation. With long reads, you can sequence 10, 15, 30x, uh, 60x, and you'll still get the same methodological errors in the reads. You'll still not be able to tell how many A's there are in a row uh, because it's always going to consistently miscall this area.
0: I think it's different for uh for PacBio versus Nanopore because I know uh Gene Myers he he talks a lot about how PacBio are the errors in PacBio are random and so he he makes exactly that point that with PacBio if you have sufficient depth then uh you can get you know perfect uh assembly and and perhaps with Nanopore is different. Yeah, you're right. You
1: know, that's a, that's a good point. Um, I've, uh, like I said, spent a lot of my time focusing on Nanopore. And you're right. That is the error model for Nanopore, but, but PacBio is, is a different beast. Um, I think you had originally asked what are the error rates in reads. And, um, I don't think I actually answered it, but for Nanopore, I think it's closer to 20% of the reads are off in some way.
0: How do you define what the 20% means? Is it like if you align the read to the genome, then like 20% will be mismatches or something?
1: You'll get about 20% or 80% identity. So that includes insertions uh, or it doesn't include insertions. It doesn't include deletions in there.
0: Oh, it does not. So 20% is just if you if there is a base there and you call the base then 20% of time they will be different but that doesn't include all the possible deletions and insertions which adds to the error profile yeah right and so yeah that that makes it very tough to do genotyping so how do you work around that very salient issue
1: so like i said the the idea that we're trying to leverage is the fact that you can use the heterozygosity of the sample to bipartition reads into the two haplotypes. Um, and we've set up this hidden Markov model that will go through the alignment and find areas where we think head sites are or where there are potentially error, errors in the sequencing and um, statistically determine what is the most likely partitioning of reads. And then once you have that information, the uh, genotyping process becomes much easier. Um, You're able to just sort of look at the haplotypes. You can call a consensus on them and then use those to determine variant sites.
0: So uh, the idea is that haplotypes are sort of less noisy right once once you separate the reads into the reads coming from you know chromosome A versus chromosome B uh meaning the, the two homologous chromosomes then uh it's much easier to call to call variants if you know that all your reads come from the same source
1: exactly it enables us to look at we we know that all those reads have come from exactly the same sequence. So if we do have the perfect bipartitioning, which it's is not necessarily the case, but if we had it, we would be able to look at all the vari- variation in those reads and classify it as errors or true variants.
0: Right. But um uh... My understanding is that although it may be convenient to explain the algorithm as these two phases, so first we do phasing, uh, we do, uh, you know, we, we separate reads into haplotypes, and then we do variant calling. Uh, but I think in your model, it actually is, you know, all part of the same model. It's all done simultaneously. Is that correct?
1: Correct. We do it in a the the model we set up simultaneously does the. Phasing, the haplotyping, and the variant calling.
0: Right, and and what allows you to do that is the hidden Markov model, and this may be a good time to introduce this concept, and and then we'll see how it actually helps us to to get where we want. Cool, yeah,
1: that sounds good. So, um, I might think that in order to understand what a hidden Markov model is it's important to take a step back and look at what a Markov model is. So a Markov model is a statistical method that you can use to model different systems. So it's got a lot of applications. You can model weather patterns and uh, populations of species and gambling outcomes and things like this. And the idea is that it's a stochastic process And you model it with a state machine. So you have some set of states that the system can be in. And there are likelihoods of changing from one state to another at different time points. And associated with each state is an emission. Um, So I think that's sort of the key structure of the model. You've got different states and you've got different emissions at each state.
0: So emission means so- something that you actually observe as as yeah. opposed to states in the hidden Markov model. So the, the word hidden comes from the fact that you don't observe the states. You know that there are some states and there is something jumping from one state to another state. You don't actually get to observe in which state the system is in, but you observe some kind of projection, some kind of manifestation of that state, and uh, there is no deterministic one-to-one mapping between states and uh, observations, but there is a probabilistic mapping. So, like some states are in some states, you're more likely to observe some one thing, and in other states, you're more likely to observe some other thing.
1: Yep, that is exactly it. It's, uh, much more difficult, I think, to, uh, conceptualize what a hidden Markov model is, uh, because you don't, um, know what state it is. All you get to see are those emissions, the direct observations, and you have to use those to infer what the underlying states are. Exactly. Um, I think a good, a good example of this, um, that I, got from the the textbook that i learned how to do uh hidden markov models from uh it's called bioinformatics algorithms an active learning approach uh by pesner and compo um is playing dice with somebody who has a loaded die so for example if you're playing dice and somebody has a die that is loaded so that it's much more likely to roll a six and also a fair die where all the um, sides are equally likely and the this person has some chance to swap dice so you know they're going to if they have a die if they're using the loaded die they'll be much more likely to keep using that loaded die but at some point they may switch dice and and if you're trying to determine what the whether the die they're using is loaded or fair um, based just on what the outcomes are what the rolls are. Um, I think that's a good conceptual, uh, example of how a hidden Markov model works.
0: That's a good example. Yeah. And, and now if you have to map this problem of genotyping and phasing onto this mathematical abstraction of a hidden Markov model, how do you do that? What are the hidden states and what are the observations in your genotyping model
1: yeah so we've decided that a hidden markov model is a good way to describe this problem of haplotyping because you've got a well-understood biological process that gives you pretty natural states so you know that each read is either going to come from the maternal haplotype or the paternal one so each read um, is of one of two states and then the emissions are the reads themselves. So given, uh, you're in the state, I'm got, I'm examining my maternal haplotype. I have some chance to see a read emerge from there and that read should exhibit the variation that exists in that maternal haplotype. In our method, the states themselves are actually modeled in terms of all the different partitionings of the reads. So. I think the simple version is just to think of it as each read is mom or dad. But in actuality, our, our method looks at each read aligned to a reference locus and then enumerates all the combinations of states, of maternal and paternal states. So, for example, if I have two reads aligned to one place, at that position, our model has four states. They're e- either both maternal, both paternal, mom and dad or dad and mom
0: right and to to clarify the individual states correspond to individual loci on the chromosome and so moving from one state to to the next state corresponds to just shifting by one base to to the right along exactly. the chromosome
1: exactly exactly um, and then set up within these different states we have this idea of compatibility, We know that it is biologically impossible to get a read that starts half on the maternal chromosome and then ends on the paternal chromosome. You're not ever going to see that. So set up in our state machine is this um, enforcing that if a read was in a maternal haplotype at one state, the next state and all states after that it will continue to be in the maternal haplotype
0: right so so this is how you arrange your hidden states that uh, from a given hidden state uh it is possible to get to some other states meaning states at the next nucleotide specifically to the states that are compatible with the current one that do not contradict logically the the current partitioning of reads into the two classes. And so from each hidden state, it is possible to get to some states, to the compatible states, and it is impossible to get to any other state. So this is how you arrange your probabilities. And then among those possible transitions, uh, do you assume that they are all equally probable? Um. Yeah, we
1: just we model it as in an adjacent reference loci. We don't really distinguish between you know the likelihood of of one thing over another in terms of those transitions. We can look at the reads themselves and use those emissions to determine the likelihood that um, one partitioning is is more probable than another. But the transitioning from one state to another is all uh, equally likely.
0: Right. So if you are in a hidden state. Then your probability to transition to another hidden state, to the next hidden state, is either one over n, where n is the number of outgoing edges, or or zero if that next state is unreachable, if that's not compatible with the current one. Exactly. So so this is one component of the hidden Markov model. That's the hidden part, uh, the hidden states that you actually want to get some insight into, right? You you do want to know how those reads are partitioned and uh, what the what the genotypes are. Um, we should mention the genotype is also uh, or may- maybe we mentioned that the genotype is also part of those hidden states.
1: Yeah, so for each one of those hidden bipartition states we also have um, states within them representing the likelihood of or the possibility of the different genotypes. Um, it is sort of an added complication on top of the model, but the, the way the hidden Markov model works, it's relatively easy to add states on top of that. Um, you can sort of think of the bipartition as a larger state that you can be in, and then internal to that, you have multiple states based off of what those possible genotypes are and then of course the aligned nucleotides at that locus do much more to inform what those are what the genotypes are
0: yeah so you put enough information into the hidden states so that you can meaningfully uh judge the probabilities of those emissions so if you know how the reads are partitioned between the two chromosomes and you know which chromosome has which allele then you can say, "Okay, this is what I observe from all the reads aligned to the locus. This is my observation, and then you can judge how likely this is to be observed given the partitioning of the reads and and the genotypes." Yeah,
1: exactly. You got it.
0: And uh, at this point, do you uh, do you embed any particular? error model because this is where you have to judge right is is this just a sequencing error or is my assignment incorrect so do you uh do you assume any any specific error model for the reads
1: uh yes yeah that's a great question um we actually have two slightly separate error models that we uh include in our calculation for this determination. So the first one is uh, sort of a based in biology. It's a biological substitution model. And the rough idea is that we would expect there to be a variant every thousand nucleotides. About one out of every thousand bases is mutated with respect to the reference. Um, And then furthermore, on top of that, we expect that uh, transitions are a little more likely than transversions. So this is what nucleotides will mutate into other ones. Um, so we have that error model. And then additionally, we have an error model that accounts for um, the way that the sequencers will miscall bases. So um, like we said, Nanopore and PacBio have different error profiles so we have um the same biological substitution model for both read technologies but nanopore and pacbio have uh different read error models um and we did training to determine uh what those are um i think that it's a imperfect system and especially because as um the Nanopore base callers change, those read error models also change. So that's something that we kind of have to continually analyze. Uh, baked into the margin phase program is a method that will go through and, and generate an error model. It essentially performs the bipartitioning once, looks at the expected haplotypes, and then calculates how far off from those haplotypes the reads themselves are, and uses that to generate a more accurate error model. Um, so you can do training of the model with the uh, application itself. It's sort of an expectation maximization
0: method. And the error model that is computed, is it just the probability of an error? Or how does the model itself, the error model for sequencing, how does it look like? Like, how, how many parameters does it have?
1: It's a full substitution matrix. So it says that given that the read was uh, an adenine, what are the different likelihoods of the actual underlying base being an adenine, a cytosine, and so on? So for every nucleotide character, it gives a likelihood of what is the... Act, what is the true nucleotide based off of this observation. And that helps a lot in the determination of what is the genotype, is that error model.
0: Okay, so that accounts for m- base miscullings, but um, how do you model the insertions and deletions? Do you have to model that? Ah, uh,
1: yes, that's a great question. Um, so we did a lot of experimentation with treating deletions, and insertions as special characters. And what we found was that um, it caused all sorts of uh, errors to accrue up in the output. We found that if we, for example, treated uh, deletions as its own character, as a gap character, that our, the quality of our results dropped drastically. Um, again, because there's so much insertion and deletion in the data. So at some point we decided that this was a problem that we were going to tackle in a different way down the line um, and that our method would just focus on doing snip calling. So uh, for both WhatsApp and uh, margin phase, the two implementations we wrote, we decided to disregard indel variants. Um, in terms of the model, what we treated this as, we treated deletions as missing data. So instead of saying, oh, I observed no aligned nucleotide here, I'm going to draw some conclusion of that. We just treated it as, hey, there's no alignment here. This read doesn't have any information in this location, and we're not going to use that to uh, make inferences about underlying genotype."
0: So by now we just defined our mathematical model. We defined, uh, here's our data, the reads, the long reads, and, uh, uh, these are our hidden states. And we sort of defined given, given the states, how likely it is that we will observe this kind of data. Uh, but that is, of course, not yet an answer we have to get from the model to the actual assignment of uh, of states we we want to know at this locus which one is the most likely uh state there and so how do you get from the model to the answer
1: yeah so uh, when we are dealing with hidden markov models there's really two different uh, methods that we use to analyze these. Um, and they both run off of the idea that we're going to use dynamic programming to um, interpret the observations with respect to the hidden states. So um, if you're unfamiliar with it, dynamic programming is a method where you consider all possible states that you could be in, and you set up a matrix um, that has the states as one axis and the observations as the other axis. And because the likelihood of being in a particular state at a particular time is entirely dependent on the observation and the likelihoods of being in the previous states, you can make a single pass through this matrix and get an idea of all the different likelihoods at the different states. So it's just a a single pass to go through all this information. So when we're doing this calculation, there's two different algorithms that we use for understanding hidden Markov models. Uh, The first one is the Viterbi algorithm. So, in this case, we run through the uh, dynamic programming matrix once, and we're trying to find the most likely path through these. So for example, you can run it through and then take the most likely state at the end of execution. And then from there, you go backwards and you look at what's the most likely state that this, uh, that we were in previously. And then given that state, what was the most likely previous state. So you do this backtrace through there to find a single path through this state machine. And that path then represents a sequence of states that you're in. Um, this is one method. Uh, for us, we actually used what we call the forward-backward algorithm. And it's a little more complicated than the Viterbi algorithm. What we do for forward-backward, is we run through the dynamic programming matrix once in the forward direction, and then we essentially invert the model. So instead of going um, from previous observations to the current observation, we go from the last observation backwards. Um, And once you've done this, that and that backwards pass gives you... uh, slightly different um, set of states. Once you have both of these dynamic programming matrices, at each time position or for each observation, you can find the exact distribution of uh, state likelihoods. It's a little counterintuitive, but you don't quite get that information by just doing a forward path because you don't consider from the forward uh, direction, all the possibilities generated or controlled by the observations later than that, which is why you need this backward path. So once you've done these two, you can combine the likelihoods of all the states at a single point in time, and you can find the most likely state that you were in at any particular time. So... Um, For our method, we run forward-backward, and then at each individual time point, we can see what's the most likely bipartitioning of the haplotypes, and then we can pick the most likely one of those and output that as our final result. Um, I know that was a lot of uh, uh, maybe programming or algorithms there, but um, I think that it's actually quite simple uh, once you wrap your head around it.
0: Yeah, the the way uh, so I think you gave like a more computer science explanation because the the algorithm itself, like what's happening inside the machine, is uh, just a dynamic programming. But the way I would explain that from a statistical point of view is that uh, to figure out the distribution, so you have a bunch of um, hidden states and it helps if you imagine them as being like very linear as as nucleotides on the chromosome uh, so it's a linear chain of of states and uh, if you want to focus your attention on just one of these states uh, then statistically what you want to do is you want to um what's called marginalize or to to sum up all the irrelevant states you you want to run through all possible all possibilities all possible assignments of values to other states and sum them up and that will give you the exact distribution at at this particular state and that's essentially what uh the forward backward algorithm does so the forward pass is Essentially, summing up everything to the left of the current nucleotide and the backward path, summing up everything to the right. And once you sum it all up, that will give you the distribution of the current uh, locus. Yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> and you're right.
1: I, I do tend to think about things in uh, in a computer science or algorithmic sense. Um, but yes, that marginalization is uh, where we got the name for the the margin phase program that we uh that we wrote
0: ah, interesting i i didn't realize that <laughs> mm-hmm. that's funny also uh i don't know if, you, if you're aware but uh it's it's a pretty cool thing i i learned about this recently from uh, lear pachter's book um there is a deep connection between uh Turby algorithm and the forward backward or actually like the forward Part of the forward backward algorithm and that is essentially the same algorithm so you know f- uh, they're both dynamic programming algorithms but they are like really the same algorithm if you consider like two different algebras so like if you run the viterbi algorithm but change the al- algebra from uh, multiplication addition to um, addition and taking the minimum, what's called the tropical algebra, then it's really the same algorithm. And it just blew my mind. It's a very Interesting. beautiful fact. Yeah, that's really cool. So the forward backward algorithm is what tells you sort of the most likely assignment of, uh, of states or actually for each state, the distribution and the most likely genotype at that point and, and also the, the partitioning at that point. Um, but there is one issue, and and the issue is that your uh, Markov model, your hidden Markov model, is ginormous, and that's because you try to consider all the possible partitions at at each point, and there are um due to the power of n, where n is the um the sequencing depth at that point. And of course, you need a uh, high sequencing depth in order to reduce the the noisiness of the reads so you do need big depth but that will uh, lead to a huge huge mark of and you have to deal with that so how do you deal with it
1: that? yeah that's a great question um so in order to handle this case um because yes as you said the number of possible states increases exponentially um we t- uh to start out, we take a maximum of 64 aligned reads at any particular position. So, if you have a read depth of 100, we essentially randomly discard reads until we get down to
0: um, a maximum of 64 depths. Which and what, what still, is, by too- the way, a typical sequencing depth in, in your experiments?
1: Um, for long reads, we found that. We did a lot of our experimentation on some public PacBio and nanopore data. So for PacBio, um, there was a Mount Sinai sequencing run that came out, I think, three or four years ago. It's uh, available on the um, NHI and CPI website. Um, and we found that that had an average read depth of about... Uh, I think it was 45, something like that. Um, and that, um that statistic is after we pruned out all reads that had a map quality of um, less than 30. So um, that means that all the, all the reads that we kept had an error rate of one in a thousand in terms of being aligned correctly. That's, Kind of different from an average read quality, but we were pretty sure of the alignments. So for the PacBio stuff, about an average mean an average depth of 45. How large your BAMS are for a normal sequencing run really depends on how much sequencing you want to do. Um, so it's a little hard to say about av- what's the what's the average amount, but um, we found during um analysis of the data that at about a redepth of 20 our um precision and recall started to converge at close to its max before that you get a lot of variation in the quality of the calls um, but you so- did
0: have some data sets with uh more than uh 64x coverage or otherwise you wouldn't have come up with with the heuristics right
1: Mostly we, we picked that because in C, the, it's written in C and we can get a 64 bit integer to, (laughs) uh, mask (laughs) the bipartition. And we, I think that the, uh, the reason for 64 is that it was well above what we should need and it fit, uh, easily into a, (laughs) into a common data type. I see. Um, Yeah. So that, that bit mask is what we use to describe uh, what we think the bipartitioning are or to enumerate all the different bipartitionings. Um, And I don't think I mentioned, but the nanopore uh, BAM was in the middle 30s. I think our average depth was about 35. And that came from uh, Matane Jane's Nature paper
0: published in, I think, 2017. So you never actually bumped into the the ceiling of 64
1: um that's not entirely true uh the alignments, um the read depth varied across chromosomes we did a uh, uh, pretty thorough alignment uh or an- analysis of the alignments, and there are regions where by chance or by uh you know some random factor we would have a, a very high read depth oh, so see. there are areas where we did have to prune reads down
0: Right, so, yeah. so you at eight, is it at each locus you choose your sixty four uh, reads max?
1: Um, the way we set it up is by doing a single pass through the BAM, and we um, greedily pick reads and we set them up into these things we call uh, profile sequences. So, um, we take reads that are non overlapping and set them all up into a single path. So we take the first read that we get, and then as soon as that read read's alignment terminates, we take the next read that starts, uh, that is aligned after that end position, and then we iteratively go through and generate these profile sequences um, until we have either reached a maximum at our location or um, all reads in the BAM are accounted for. Mm-hmm. So it's not really at every reference locus we pick a set of reads. It's that we use as many reads with a at to generate a depth of one and then we use as many reads as we can to generate a depth of
0: two and so on right, right okay, so uh we were talking about how you deal with the exponential explosion of the number of partitionings.
1: yeah, exactly. So we use an algorithmic tool. Um, it's sort of a divide and conquer method. Um, and so what we do is we take these very complicated set of states and we divide it into half. So we recursively take the set of profile sequences and we um, drop them down until we just have two sequences together. Then we run our algorithm on this forward, backward, and we can use that to find the most likely partitionings of these small sets of reads. So we essentially prune out unlikely states. Then, having done this for all pairs of reads, we combine those pairs into a set of four reads. And then once we have four reads, we can run the algorithm on it again. Um, only on the more likely states, and then use those likelihoods to prune down other additional unlikely states. Having done this multiple times as we iterate back up through the stack, it ends up taking longer to compute, but the state space that we use never gets that full exponential growth because we've removed a lot of the states as we... Uh, go down to this stack and back up again
0: that's pretty cool
1: um yeah it's a cool method um, i mean the method still takes a lot of memory uh part of the issue with this is that it still does have a high memory footprint uh but it's not that exponential you know thousands of gigabytes of memory um it's sort of on the order of tens of gigs we found
0: and uh, does it depend only on the sequencing depth, or does it also scale with the um, with the chromosome length?
1: Um, it does scale with the chromosome length, also. Um, so when we ran Margin Phase, the um, we took and developed a uh, pipeline to enable us to chunk up the input chromosomes, divide it into pieces, and then run margin phase on sort of bite-sized chunks of it, and then use that information to sort of stitch together the uh, the output VCF. Um, we used a workflow system called TOIL, which was also developed at uh, UC Santa Cruz. Um, it's a Python framework that um relies heavily on Docker images, um, which enables you to have some measure of security that your uh, generic workflow is going to be run in the same way each time. Uh, you know, with genomic workflows, you find that somebody updates a new version and all of a sudden your um, expectations have changed in terms of what the output data should look like. So it relies on these static images Um and enables you to, for example, run the workflow on the Amazon spot market so you can still use the cloud infrastructure, but um, it lets you back up your workflow and checkpoint it at various states so that you can um, utilize the cheaper spot market, which ends up costing somewhere between
0: a half and a quarter of the cost generally. Right. So, so for people is, who are not aware um, how, how this works, is essentially you can borrow the time on the machines that are idle, so you don't get a guaranteed machine. But if some machine is idle uh, at Amazon, you can uh, utilize that a bit of time. Exactly. For, for a fraction of the price.
1: The benefit is that it's much cheaper, but the cost is that as soon as Amazon finds somebody who actually wants to pay full price for that hardware, they'll shut you down without warning. So being able to checkpoint your work is a critical part of being able to use the spot market effectively. But um, we found that it it really is an effective method
0: to do high scale uh, computing. So a a natural uh, level of parallelism here is chromosomes because they're uh, mostly independent. But um, is there more parallelism? Like can you process different parts of the same chromosome in parallel on different machines?
1: Exactly. That's also one of the benefits of being able to chunk it up. So the workflow that we ran is fully configurable so you can choose any... Uh, chunk size that you want um, but uh, we ended up doing i think three megabase chunks at a time which enables us to do essentially a thousand of these at once um, given a you know three billion or three gigabase genome um, which means that the this method makes it very parallelizable
0: so say I wanted to run this on my laptop. I think I have 16 gig of RAM, so the, the RAM should be enough. But in terms of processing time, is there any hope that uh, I will live to see it finish?
1: Um, so the margin phase implementation is, um, at a whole genome scale, probably going to be difficult to run on your laptop. Um, but, um, the, the paper that we put out actually included two different implementations of this method. So, um, the other method was developed by, uh, Tobias Marshall. Uh, like I said, who's at Max Planck and his grad student, Jana Eibler. Um, and they built it as an extension onto WhatsApp. Uh, WhatsApp is a, um, existing tool to do haplotyping. Um, and their implementation is, uh, Um, efficient enough that it can run on a uh, laptop. Um, Part of the benefit of, or part of the reason that they enable you to do that is because um, they require that you have existing variant sites beforehand. So it's a little easier for them to, or for the WhatsApp implementation, to run and to consider fewer states. The margin phase implementation does everything Uh, sort of de novo, so you end up considering a lot more states, um, which means that it um, takes up a lot more footprint. So if you were trying to run this uh, application or this method on a laptop, I would recommend looking at the WhatsApp implementation instead of the margin phase one that I uh, worked on directly.
0: That's interesting. So running um, your algorithm One version could run on a laptop the other one probably not but you also mentioned that uh, the alternative variant colors also didn't didn't run and what were the issues there is that they were taking too long uh to run on long reads or so you said i think so freebase found a lot of variants so probably its error model was off for long reads but um what were the the issues that you ran into
1: um yeah i i encourage people to explore different options but <laughs> we certainly found that all the short read variant callers we used um either didn't complete uh couldn't even start in the case of gatks haplotype caller um it just depends on too much of the short read infrastructure for example, quality scores and things mm. like that. So we couldn't get that to run. And yeah, Freebase produced pretty awful results uh in terms of its precision and um took prohibitively long when we ran it. I'm not an expert on it. So it might be that I missed some sort of, you know, default setting or something like that. But um I think you'll have a hard time trying to run those short read callers on long read data.
0: And did you compare your algorithm to the long read callers, the existing ones?
1: Um, We did. There is a um, preprint out called, um, I'm not sure if it's clairvoyant or clairvoyante, and they use a neural net to do base calling. So I think, I'm not sure exactly what their method is, but there's been a lot of uh, progress in the field doing convolutional neural nets into, uh, relational neural nets to do, uh, image calling. So, or to do base calling, uh, variant calling, <laughs> excuse me. Um, these methods will look at a, essentially a pileup of the reads and can use, uh, sort of existing image processing frameworks to try to tease out what the variation is. Um, some of the existing methods will do local realignment of um, the reads. So, for example, if you have indels, it'll try multiple different alignments around these loci to uh, try to determine these. Um, the, benef- the problem with using one of these methods is that you don't get the haplotyping information. Unless you can account for the long-range information in these reads, um, you can't really infer haplotypes from it, which is part of what we were trying to do with this method. Um, there's another paper put out um by a guy out of Hong Kong, Guo, um, who has a method where they look at uh, long reads. They find, I, I believe that they find a read that best matches the other reads and then tries to by by partition the reads based off of similarity to those exemplar reads. Um, but we weren't able to get it to run on um, actual data. They did a lot of their analysis on simulation data. So mm. as far as we know, we couldn't find another method of getting both haplotypes and variants out of long read data
0: yeah now now that you mentioned it i remember uh it was a big piece of news maybe a couple of years ago when wasn't it like google or or some other big player that came up with this algorithm based on like reducing it to an image like pe- people I, I i'm not sure if everyone uh caught it uh it's like literally an image it's not some kind of Bioinformatic concepts, like literally a picture that they, uh, draw this pile up picture and then, uh, yeah, they, they run some kind of picture algorithms on, on that. I, I found it very funny at the time, but, uh, uh, did you have any success running that?
1: Um, uh, yes. Yeah, so, um, you're right. Uh, Google did do this. The, the application is called deep variant, I think. And the way they set it up is um, you can sort of imagine a, you know, a picture of your cat or something as a collection of, uh, you know, pixels and color depths. And the way they encode genomic information into this image is with different channels. So um, I don't fully understand it, but I think a good analogy is is they'll take, you know, all the red pixels and they'll say, we're going to encode the nucleotide information here using this set of infor- using this part of the image, and we'll encode the, um, you know, support track whether or not these nucleotides show uh, support for a particular variant in this track. And we'll put quality score using the blue pixels or something like this. So, um when you look at it uh, from what I've seen it looks kind of like a like a single plaid t-shirt pile up um, <laughs> it's pretty uh it's pretty incredible what they can do with it um and and using those methods enables them to um use a lot of uh pre-trained knowledge on images so um i I don't know if we want to go too far into it, but there's a um, a lot of existing training that um, they've used neural nets to do to, for example, pick out shapes and things. So if you want to look at a picture and determine, oh, is this a dog or a cat? You start out by taking the shape of the things that are in there and you can compare colors and all these different features of the data set. But um, using those, it, it enables you to uh, expand upon all this existing training. Um, In terms of our method, uh, we um, obviously are using a a statistical method, which I tend to like a little more than relying on neural nets because it's understandable. Or, (laughs) I mean, there's some complicated math there. But um, at each point, all of the calculations you have have some sort of meaning Um, neural nets tend to be a bit of a black box. They will produce good results a lot of the time, but you don't really know what's going on under the hood unless you're a, a very, very expert in the, in the field. Um, what we think is that in addition to these, um, you know, different, uh, tracks that they put in these images that if we could, for example, do, uh, processing pipeline on data, and even if we don't call variants, if we can divide the reads into haplotypes, encoding haplotype information into the images might uh, provide a piece of context that can um, help these uh, image-based variant callers, which do work uh, very well. So we think that, that our method has a, a home in these workflows even if we don't directly do image processing or variant calling using those methods.
0: Yeah, I think uh, we try to do a good job explaining the um, the model and the algorithm. And uh, is there anything else that uh, you'd like to talk about? Um, I don't think I have anything else to say. Um,
1: I uh, think that using long reads is going to have a home in a lot of clinical settings, uh, in the near future. I especially think that the nanopore sequencing shows a lot of promise. Um, they, uh, they're still improving the pores that they use and the base colors that they use to, uh, mitigate a lot of the errors they currently, um, show. Um, one of the other, uh, good benefits of nanopore data, which I haven't mentioned today is that they can do methylation calling or that's starting to show this promise. Um, And I think that uh, once that methylation calling happens, there's going to be a big explosion of um, new work that's being done using that in both a clinical and just sort of method development sense. Um, I'm personally really excited to get that working because I think that the presence of allele-specific methylation. Um, so methylation that happens differently on on the maternal and paternal chromosome is going to enable this method to work better because we'll have more uh, sites for differentiation and should hopefully be able to produce um, methylation variant calling, um, which is something that doesn't really exist and isn't well understood. So I'm really excited for the future of nanopore sequencing and the applications that it's going to have down
0: the line. So that's a really interesting point. So when you analyze just the genome sequencing, then you rely on the fact that the DNA uh, is everywhere the same, right? So you can, uh, because you you don't sequence single cells, you you collect a sample and you have many... uh, Examples, many copies of the same chromosomes, uh, and this is how you get your sequencing depth. But, uh, in the case of methylation, you, you cannot know that it's necessarily the same across different cells. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure how, how that's going to work.
1: Yeah. Um, I think it's not a very well understood, um, uh, part of the genome. You know, currently methylation detection is very hard and expensive to do. Um, I know that there have been some studies that show that at specific locations, they see evidence of allele-specific methylation. Um, chromosome X inactivation in uh, females is one of the easiest examples. Um, but, you know, we're not really sure if methylation exists uh, randomly across other areas of the genome, whether it'll be that at specific sites, we will always see methylation or um, not. So I think it'll be difficult to piece together uh, evidence of methylation that happens consistently in areas, whether it's on one haplotype or both, um, and where methylation exists randomly. Uh, But I think that a a hidden Markov model is something that should be able to uh, describe that interplay, you know, adding in states to represent um, the the methylated nucleotides, states to represent um, whether the sequence is being methylated in an allele-specific way or whether it's being methylated randomly. Um, But I, I think that this method should enable us to tease that out once the data is there so i think that's a, an exciting prospect
0: yeah yeah definitely and uh i just wanted to say that i really enjoyed the you know the way uh you applied the uh hidden markov model here i haven't seen anything like this before so the an application of hidden markov model to to genotyping and uh, i thought the the model is you know really elegant it's it's not something you obviously see like if you consider how to solve this genotyping problem then perhaps hidden markov model is not the first thing that comes to mind but uh once you really dig into it it, it really starts to to make sense cool i appreciate it i agree i think that it is a uh, cool
1: sort of maybe not intuitive application but i think that um in practice it works out really well